arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. One of the greatest misconceptions about nuclear bombs is that they instantly annihilate everything in sight. But the fallout from a nuclear blast actually has layers. When it explodes, it leaves in its wake a kind of destruction that's both fast and slow, and one whose devastation stretches much farther and lingers far longer than many might suspect. Here's what actually happens when a nuclear bomb hits. For the sake of example, imagine a 10 kiloton nuclear bomb goes off in Times Square. The moment it detonates, a white flash is visible for miles. The light is so bright that, for a moment, people as far away as Queens and Newark can't see. At the same time, scorching heat radiates outward from the explosion site, followed by a massive fireball. The core of the fireball is tens of millions of degrees, as hot as the center of the sun. There are few survivors within a half mile radius of the blast. Buildings and vegetation in that same range ignite or char. The bomb disrupts gas lines, burns structures and power lines, and knocks out communication towers and cell phones within about 1.6 miles. Flying glass and debris are immediate danger, so stay where you are until you're sure it's safe to move. A colossal wave of pressure follows the fireball, traveling at the speed of sound and producing winds as fast as 500 miles per hour. All told, the explosion creates a crater 50 feet deep and a shockwave of about 3.2 miles, reaching south to Gramercy Park, north to the Met, and east and west into the Hudson. Residual pressure shatters windows, and piles of rubble as tall as 30 feet tower within a half-mile radius of Times Square. This has all happened in a matter of seconds. Meanwhile, in the days and hours after the initial explosion, a plume of fallout travels in a single direction away from the blast site. The plume could, for example, settle up the eastern seaboard, leaving radioactive dust on everything in its path. The most radioactive region of the plume could reach about 20 miles to New Rochelle. A much larger but less radioactive region of the plume, known as the Hot Zone, could extend about 60 miles north to Monroe, Connecticut. Now large amounts of pulverized debris and molten earth are pulled up into the mushroom cloud. The radioactive atoms produced in the explosion join with the particles of earth and debris. The mushroom-shaped cloud forms and climbs higher. The first pulse of radiation wreaks biological warfare at the molecular level of everyone outside or in weakly insulated buildings, altering the structure of key cellular machinery and injuring DNA so that within minutes, people begin to feel nauseous and dizzy and begin to experience headaches and vomiting. Then, anywhere from several days and two weeks, symptoms of those exposed to radiation worsen. In severe cases, infected people will become delirious, emaciated, and incapacitated. In most cases, people with radiation sickness die in one of two ways. Their immune system is no longer able to fight infection, or their digestive system becomes too damaged to function. Those who survive do so by seeking shelter, ideally in a strong underground structure, like a basement, a tunnel, or a parking garage. 
Fallout from a nuclear blast is extremely dangerous at first, but the danger decreases rapidly. Within 24 to 72 hours of the explosion, it's safe for survivors to re-emerge. Theoretically, a bomb of this size would kill about 250,000 people and injure roughly 300,000 more. That's 20 times more deadly than any act of terrorism or natural disaster in all of America's history. And if in this hypothetical scenario, the bomb had been dropped from the sky instead of detonated on the ground, the number of fatalities would have soared. For context, consider this. This hypothetical scenario is a small-scale example. A larger nuke, like the 300 kiloton warheads that countries like, say, China or Russia possess, would kill at least 1.2 million and injure an additional 2 million more. I think 60 years away from the Cuban Missile Crisis, it's easy to have a complacent attitude toward the destructive and lethal power of an atomic bomb. This is what Cronman faces as the conspiracy to nuke Camden Bay and the President of the United States continues. That conspiracy is front and center here in episode 5, and Junior Janus has covered his tracks in that and other illegal activities. Cronman flies on his own accord when Junior threatens his sister Julie. All the while, the bomb is about to be armed. Episode 5 of Cronman by Robert P. Fitton concludes now. Chapter 26 Pavehawk Helicopter over Lake Van Buren, U.S. Canadian border, August 22, 2021, 9.17 a.m. Randy was surprised when the helicopter veered over wide Lake Van Buren. Where are we going, Colonel Canada? Negative. He turned with his headphone and his mic. This will be a military complex and state-of-the-art. It needs to be totally secure. You're launching me into orbit. Not quite. Delta Complex is 650 feet below Lake Van Buren. What about Fogarty? Fogarty's in the city. Safe apartment to monitor things near Ralston Square. Once you're settled in Delta, she'll occupy a module along with the incremental personnel. Incremental personnel? You, Randy, are a part of a larger defense project. It's a base against homeland and external attacks. Eventually, we'll have 90 special ops within these modules, as well as a weapons arsenal. You're close when you mention space. It's a prototype for a space station between the moon and the Earth. It will resemble a wagon wheel. Are you telling me I'm going to be stuck underwater? Asked Randy, looking at the surface of the lake passing below. Not at all. This is just your base. There are two modes of entry. A docking area for submarine vehicles and an expandable tube that can move along the surface like a periscope. We simply use the latter. Randy smiled, half believing any of it. You will be assigned to incidents as they happen, as well as R&R in the complex. You just have to keep your identity hidden. This project is only known to a select group in my division headed by General Slater and other team members at the White House. Won't anyone notice the comings and goings? Not the construction. The base is near the U.S.-Canadian borderline, 15 miles south of landfall in Canada. Our construction vehicles are far away from the shipping lanes and the material shipped through Canada at the base where we're landing. We'll take a stealth craft to the exact location. I still think we should be back in Camden Bay, despite what Decker has put in place. No, not unless there's an emergency. Freighter North Atlantic 9.30 a.m.
The diesel engine spewed a constant saturation into the stuffy air below. Collins hurried into the fresh air on deck. He swung the binoculars up as a helicopter passed several kilometers to the south. Why are they out there? asked Martin, moving up behind him. Don't panic. They know nothing of our mission and are headed northeast. They're irrelevant. Sweeping the lake for Richardson's visit. Collins zoomed in on the fast-moving dark brown helicopter. We're fine. In 15 minutes, we'll have the materials and the bomb casing aboard. These people are oblivious. They have no idea. Chapter 27. Stealth Prototype Vehicle Number 350 on Lake Van Buren, Calais, Ontario, Canada, August 22, 2021, 10.45 a.m. The stealth maneuvering boat could reach speeds of 50 knots. It had a center core that was raised into the water like the talons of a majestic bird. Inside resembled a command ship with weapons consoles, computer monitors, and seats for 10 personnel. Randy was surprised the boat showed no sign of rocking or the type of ride expected on a water surface. The commander, headphones over his bushy hair, informed Briggs that John Wharton was on channel. Briggs signaled to allow the transmission inside the vehicle. The FBI agent had just gotten off a conference call with his superiors in Washington. John, what are you saying? Banking contacts with Janice on the same day? Still speculation. Just because deposits were made on the same day. Put Randy on, said Wharton. I can hear you, John. Oh, Boris is related to a man named Ahmed Rashid. The contact point for multiple deposits in Saudi banks on the same day. We'll take some time to get the depositor's name. Janice may have been the facilitator. How does that relate to Richardson? My question exactly. The colonel says you're en route to Delta Complex. I need you back here. Well, Decker has his orders, and he hasn't exactly got the welcome mat out for me. One thing about me, Randy, and I know you're the same way. It's all about getting to the finish line. Not necessarily within the parameters. You'll have to talk to the colonel. Briggs took the phone and nodded. Okay, we'll be here. What are you going to do, colonel? Get someone out here. If we land at the airport, we'll be tracked. Apparently, our friends from beyond were very much concerned about Alboros. Freighter, North Atlantic, 11.06 a.m. The torpedo cut Lake Van Buren's smooth blue water like a swift-moving dolphin. Collins's men inside the freighter performed a maneuver to slow the unarmed vessel. More men alongside lowered a form-fitting basket to hoist the nuclear material aboard ship. Collins puffed on a cigarette as the water drained over the smooth torpedo edges and produced a consistent splatter back into the lake. Metal snap holders were placed around the torpedo's pointed ends. Electric motors whined as the potential microburst bomb was lowered onto a dolly. What do you say now, Collins? We do a good job? asked Martin. We won't know for sure until that thing is properly attached to the drone. The president will touch down within the hour. Collins nodded and followed the torpedo as it was brought down a rail around the corner. Collins walked down the dock in the sunshine and tracked the torpedo as they brought it down the ramp into the body of the ship. We'll begin transfer to the drone immediately, said Martin. Don't lose your cool. Take your time. Do it right. Eddie's Quick Fix Garage, 12.22 p.m. Wharton had choppered Randy and Briggs back to Camden Bay 
in Eddie's garage. Afternoon, Fogarty, having just arrived from the downtown apartment, set a platter from the deli on the table for Briggs, Randy, and herself. Briggs spoke with Wharton. Don't worry, Fogarty, said Randy, holding his own phone. He had just dialed Julie. The phone kicked into voicemail and he hung up. You'll get to see this underwater theme park when I do, he said, grabbing a chicken salad sub. Well, they'll have to construct an entire docking area for food shipments and Snickers bar. Where is she, Fogarty? Then he dialed Channel 4. This is Randy. Is my sister at work? I haven't seen her since yesterday. Right. She usually answers my calls right away. I can check up front. Thanks. What's the matter, Randy? Asked Briggs, his hand over the landline phone's mouthpiece. I can't get a hold of Julie. Briggs nodded and continued talking with Wharton. Fogarty slid another sandwich into Randy's hand. Thank you. It's like feeding a horse, she said, smiling. Oh, be quiet, he said, giving her a phony grimace. No one has seen her all day. She never came back to the station. Call me if she comes in. Yes, sir. Randy held out his phone. His brow furrowed as he dialed Bulldog Baldwin. Baldwin. Bull! Can you send somebody over to Julie's condo? She never showed up at Channel 4 this morning. Why, Randy? We're going crazy trying to work with the Secret Service downtown. I suspect Junior. Why? Because he wants answers about Cronman. All right. You can have somebody check the tower. Thank you. Let me know when you'll be downtown. Okay, I will. Thanks, Bull. As Briggs ended his call, Eddie pounded on the outside door. Fogarty flipped on the monitor. Eddie had positioned his face directly in front of the camera. I saw Fogarty bring food in there. Briggs's face reddened as he stepped up to the inside camera. Hey, Conover, go call takeout. I'm not running a chuck wagon here. I'm a hungry man. You get lost or I'll call the sharpshooters. Eddie looked around the garage, then he backed away from the camera. Briggs pounded the wall. I can't believe I have to deal with this fool. You can get combat pay, Colonel, said Fogarty. With Conover, I'll take it, he turned to Randy. All manholes have been closed, all windows secured in the square, and real sharpshooters are on the roofs. I should have anticipated a possible junior move to finances, said Randy. We all should have thought about it. Briggs's phone rang again. Briggs, uh, hello, John. How much did he pay? I see. I'm wondering if all the overseas Middle East money has made its way into the campaign by now. I agree. Junior has money from the Middle East? asked Randy. Briggs shrugged his shoulders. Junior's a lot of things, John, but I wouldn't say he's involved in killing the president. Right. That's Decker's job. Well, Julie Wilson is missing. Chief Baldwin is handling it. Sure, but I can't have a security breach concerning Randy. Okay. Bye. What did he say? He's alerting his men about Julie. He told me security is on high alert. They've made three sweeps of the square since daybreak because of this Fournier threat. Do you think Junior is connected to the Fournier threat? asked Randy. No, he's merely funneled money to sit down with Richardson. Junior has to show up tonight. Briggs reached around and took a sub out of the box. They'll interview him then. Decker's people have the donor list. Someone who is going to kill the president isn't going to be on the donor list, said Randy. I need to join the search for Julie. Unless you know where she is, I'll have to deny that request. Please. I emphasize I can't let Decker get his claws into you. Hotel Ralston, 
Ralston Square, 35 Beach Street, Camden Bay, New York, August 22, 2021, 4.17 p.m. Kovar's long limo brought him from the Camden Bay Airport to the Hotel Ralston's marble concourse and columns in less than 15 minutes. The driver opened the door and he stepped under the portico. In his Suco pocket was a meaningless silver device that looked more like a remote control. He walked ahead of the driver to the brass revolving door. The voluminous panel lobby had smooth white tile up to the linear desk. For the first time, Kovar's unshakable nerves seemed to unravel. Had he lost his nerve now that he was in a hotel less than a mile from where Richardson would speak tomorrow? Yes, sir, said the well-dressed clerk in the blue suit. My name is Andre Fournier. I have reservations for this evening. Yes, Mr. Fournier. My bags will be in momentarily. Yes, sir. We have prepared room 657 with a king-size bed. Excellent. Will you be staying for dinner, sir? It will be a late dinner. I will contact you when I arrive back at the hotel. The wide screen over the white brick fireplace showed the president's huge blue and white jet landing at Camden Bay Airport along the lake. He wandered across the rug as the wheels of Air Force One touched down. His heart thumped as he stood in front of the monitor. The plane quickly slowed down the runway. Kovar inhaled and returned to the front desk as his driver brought the suitcases inside. He slowly raised his hand, feeling the solid second half of the synchronizer inside his suit coat. The plane was stopped now. He checked his watch. In 12 hours, he would be in Canada. Eddie's Quick Fix Garage, 4.45 p.m. Randy and Fogarty faced the monitor as Wharton Briggs both engaged in long cell phone conversations outside the room. Airport personnel had just maneuvered the stairway over the tarmac and up to Air Force One. A few minutes later, as Briggs re-entered the room, the gray, fluffy-haired Richardson appeared in the hatchway. The president made a sweeping wave to the small crowd that had gathered along the rope barriers. Well, there he is, Austin, said Fogarty. Is it a tempest in a teapot or something else? Randy crossed his arms. Who has the opportunity? Richardson descended the staircase. He shook hands with Camden Bay's mayor, Richard Ames, kissed Ames' wife, and then shook hands with a dozen or more city councilors. People in security and local people have opportunity, said Briggs. Randy shook his head. Ouroboros is the group and the money is from the Middle East. He's right, said Wharton. Okay, then how? Wharton pointed. Suicide bomber? Possible, said Fogarty. Someone knocked on the front door. Who is it? Yelled Wharton as he drew his long-barreled gun. Baldwin, said Bulldog's muffled voice behind the door. Wharton held the gun up as he cracked open the door and then looked into the paint room as he opened the security doors and cracked open the outside door to the paint room. Come on in, Chief. I'm alone. Bulldog wore his blue uniform and hat. I just got off the phone with two of my detectives. We have witnesses who saw Julie Wilson in a late model sedan leaving Janice Tower this morning. The car headed north along the Camden Expressway. I knew it. Does Janice have any property north of the city? asked Wharton. I'm waiting for City Hall to get me that list. We should have it within the hour. What about Decker? Can he help? asked Randy. Forget it, said Wharton. They've got some kind of classification on this. Even the FBI can't get in there. Randy faced Briggs. 
Junior is threatening Julie to get to me. We can send a team north once we locate... No, I'll take care of the arrogant Mr. Janice. We just called Junior's cell phone, said Bulldog, as well as some of the idiots at work for him, and his lawyer, Dutch Corcoran. Corcoran says he hasn't seen Junior since yesterday. He's lying, said Wharton. Kenny, he said to his young agent, bring in Corcoran. On what charge? I don't know. You'll think of something. We need to locate Janice and Randy's sister. Randy swung back to the TV. Richardson climbed into a long, black limo. The Marine guard remained saluting as the car pulled along the tarmac. Randy pressed his lips. John, can we connect Junior and Alboros? Haven't been able to, Randy. Morton looked up from the laptop. He shook his head. There's nothing. If it does exist, it will take time. They should just override the president. Put pressure on him with the press. This is an unnecessary risk, all because of politics. I need to know everyone from every list within a 25-mile radius of this place. Chapter 28. Hotel Regalia, Grand Ballroom, Camden Bay, New York, 7.45 p.m. Junior shook hands with the president in a small gathering in the large ballroom. On behalf of the committee, Mr. Janice, let me tell you that your donation will buy critical airtime against the packs that have formed against me. Whatever we can do for you, Mr. President, Janice Enterprises are at the disposal of the committee. I may just hold you to that, he said, his eyes opening wide as he laughed. Your father was very helpful to my senatorial campaign. I'm glad, said Junior. What was that? asked the president. I'm glad he could help. Now where is your friend who was so generous with that five million dollars? Junior looked over his shoulder. I'm sure he's uh, been delayed. Call me, said the lanky John Melville. The president will be here for another hour and a half. He shook Junior's hand as Junior fumed inside. I'll talk to you later, Mr. Janice. Yes, sir. As the president and Melville moved along the crowd, Junior stormed into the outside lobby. He cornered Dutch by the sweeping staircase, talking to three ladies. Where the hell is Kovar? That bastard embarrassed me as a no-show for the president of the United States, Dutch. Excuse me, ladies said Dutch as he ushered Junior back toward the open bar. Can't you open your mouth without making a scene, Junior? Shut up. Where is Kovar? How do I know? We have an hour and a half, Dutch. I don't want that Frenchman or whoever the hell he is blowing it for me with the president because he can't drag his ass over here. He's supposed to be staying at the Ralston. Why not here? Dutch was already on his cell. He walked along the wall and then ended the call abruptly. What's going on, Dutch? Wait. Yeah, wait. Sure, Dutch. I knew I couldn't trust that son of a bitch. There is no Kovar at the Ralston. What? Get your ass down to the Ralston. Well, I'm sure the president will understand. You let me worry about that, Dutch. Kovar, in his street clothes, walked in sneakers and jeans across level three of the Ralston garage. He was in the shadows now, walking casually as if he were on an evening stroll. Inside the pouch of his white hoodie was the essential component for a device that would steer a drone armed with a focused nuclear device high above the President of the United States as he spoke to the people of Camden Bay. Behind him, 
the fluorescent light tapped toward the trash barrel as he slowly approached. Behind him, the fluorescent lights tapered toward the trash barrel as he slowly approached. He reached into the trash and pulled out a red plastic bag. Inside was an identical surface that snapped into place on his device. All that was needed now was to push the rounded gray button on the bottom of the device. He placed his thumb over the beveled edge and pushed hard. Somewhere out on Lake Van Buren, a signal would be monitored by the cargo vessel. He checked his watch. In 18 hours, Richardson would give his speech in the square. But now Kovar knew he could be apprehended with an activated device that would surely send him to the executioner. He stood on the trash bin and lifted the device upward. Once again, he checked the button and placed the activated device on the concrete lip between the garage levels. Then he threw the plastic bag in the trash bin. He increased his pace now and moved in the fluorescent light down the ramp to the first floor. Everything was in place. Corbin Apartments, Camden Bay, New York, August 22nd, 2021, 10.39 p.m. Wharton and three agents were on separate phones at the apartment's dining room table. Briggs and Fogarty took a call on the Northern California investigation. Randy had just answered a call from Bulldog. Anything on Julie, Chief? We just finished questioning Junior. He just met the President earlier this evening. He denied knowing anything about Julie's disappearance. But I do have a list of his warehouses from the Chamber of Commerce. Great, I needed that. I'll get it to your phone. I had five men badgering him and he didn't waver at all. What did he say about his men in the car with Julie inside? Oh, he denied it. Finally, Dutch Corcoran stepped in and stopped the questioning. So he left? No, Decker and his boys arrived. They started questioning him about his donation to Richardson. Ian? He said outright he wanted the president's ear for his business activities. Well, that's probably true. We did obtain a list of people meeting with the president tonight. Can you put John Wharton on? Sure said Randy as he walked across the room to the table. We just emailed the warehouse list to you. Thanks. Wharton spoke with one of his agents. John, it's... Bulldog? asked Wharton, grinning as he took the phone. Yes, Chief. Right. Really? Email it over. Oh, you have? These people must be staying in the area. Great. Good work. He procured a list from the campaign. As soon as that list comes through, we can start calling the hotels. Corbin Apartments, August 23, 2021, 1.16 a.m. Wharton held the phone with his elbow and pointed upward. Look, Decker, why did this man Kovar meet with the president? He did. What? He never showed. Who is he? Any alias? No, I can't reach Wilson or Briggs. You told them to leave the area. Yeah, suppose he's in cahoots with... Forget it, Decker. I already have requests into Washington to get President Richardson the hell out of Camden Bay. Nothing's going to happen. We have everything secured. Yeah, fine. Wharton hung up the phone and shook his head. Then he speed dialed his agent. Kenny, find out if Kovar used any aliases. If you find him, it's just purely surveillance. Do not confront him at this time. And call us right away. Yes, sir. Wharton moved over to Briggs on the phone. 
Colonel, what do you have on Kovar? Nothing. International traitor. No aliases. Does he match up with Oboros? Oboros is buried. Look, John, the president needs to get out of here. I agree, but he won't do it. Wharton's phone sounded. Yeah. Holy shit. Get to the Ralston. Outside. Wait for us. Fournier is at the Ralston. Briggs stood. Wharton faced Randy. Hey, Cronman, you're going on your first official mission as long as it's all right with your commanding officer. Let's get him. Hotel Ralston, room 657, 2.45 a.m. Wharton drew his gun as he leaned around the corner of the sixth-floor corridor. John, said Randy, just let me go up ahead. Wharton looked at Fogarty and Briggs. Briggs spoke in a lower voice. Either we trust in Randy or we don't. Wharton paused and thought. Then he nodded his head. Go ahead, Randy. Randy stepped by Wharton and marched without undergoing any changes toward room 657. His arms expanded with his chest as he crashed through the door. Then he walked over the door into an empty room. Five suitcases were aligned along the air conditioning unit. He moved them with his sneaker. I don't think there's anything in these suitcases. Wharton's eyes darted back and forth. Then he turned. Kenny, open the suitcases. Try not to disturb the fingerprints. The taller agent used gloves to open the suitcases one by one. What the hell's going on here, John? asked Briggs. Wharton flipped open his phone and dialed Decker. The line rang for a time on speaker. Decker. Where are you, Alvin? In the lobby. Wonderful. Fournier's not in his room and the suitcases are empty. We're sweeping the area. Just get Richardson out of here. Then just force him out. This is stupid. He says it's all nonsense. Yeah, right. Wharton hung up and moved the phone away from his head. Then he punched in another number. He took away the speaker. Give me the director. We can leave the room, said Briggs. Wharton shook his head. Hello, Mr. Director. Sorry for the late call. We've made some headway with this character, Covier, a.k.a. Andre Fournier. Yes, yes. No one's been able to trace the identity. I strongly urge the president to leave Camden Bay. Yes, sir. Thank you. Good night. He hung up the phone. Wharton flipped the phone and turned. The director's spoken to the president, but the president is going ahead with the speech because we have no direct evidence. Stubborn man, said Briggs. That is the understatement of the year. Now, gentlemen, Miss Fogarty. I suggest we get some shut-eye before we uh, resume our duties tomorrow morning. Chapter 29 The Module Eddie's Quick Fix Garage August 23, 2021 3 a.m. Randy sat in front of the TV monitor inside the garage module. He paid little attention to the Technicolor Western movie. With Julie still missing, he couldn't sleep. Fogarty appeared in the doorway of the second quarters. Randy turned and smiled. Hello, Fogarty. It's three o'clock in the morning, Randy. I thought the FBI might locate where they took Julie. We have all the warehouses. He stood and stretched. What are you watching? You know, I don't even know. Well, let's start watching the movie on the big screen. Fogarty fell asleep on Randy's shoulder. On the table were plates and a remnant of a breakfast. The guy in the movie was making millions off of redwood trees in Northern California. 
Randy smiled when he thought of Briggs investigating an incident in modern-day California. Fogarty's body was warm and her hair wispy and fresh. Her breathing was steady. The movie ended, but he didn't stand. The sun broke through the garage windows on the monitors. He thought about Brownie and wondered if Pappy was walking him early. Knowing Pappy, he probably stayed in bed. Randy's phone rang and Fogarty opened her blue eyes. You look so sleepy, Fogarty. Oh, I'm sorry, she said, sitting up. I didn't realize I was on your shoulder. Fogarty, he said, holding her wrist. It's all right. It just means we'll have to watch the movie again at some other time. He answered the call. This is Randy. Junior's voice buzzed in his ear. Hey, Wilson, your sister will be just fine. Randy sat up straight. Where is she, Junior? Fogarty leaned toward the phone. Junior laughed for a long time. Ha <laughs> ha! Got a dirty little secret, do we, Cronman? You listen to me, Junior. You do anything to her and I'll kill you. With your bare hands, no doubt, Cronman. Randy grit his teeth as he growled back at Junior. What do you want? Oh, nothing really, Randy. I want to confirm your identity. I don't know what you're talking about. Fogarty nodded. Here's the deal, pal. You have four hours to tell me who and why you are what you are, or she gets dropped in Lake Van Buren and nobody ever sees her again. I'll meet you. Where are you, at the tower? Junior chuckled. Tell me it's true. You're insane, Junior. Oh, I don't think so. It's 6 a.m. You have till 9 to give me the skinny. Junior hung up, and Fogarty held the phone. That's not his number. It's an exchange. You're right. That's a Grassley exchange. Randy opened the emails on his phone. Then he opened the file with Junior's warehouses. Fogarty ran her finger down the display. There it is. Grassley, 22 South Main Street. He stuffed the phone in his jeans pocket. Then he sat at the desk and put on his sneakers. You're going up there, airborne? Yeah, it won't take long. Do me a favor, Fogarty. Sure, anything. Don't call Briggs unless I call you from Grassley, or I'll call Wharton. Okay? Unless something comes up with the President or Kovar, I won't call you. Be careful. Be careful not to make him panic and hurt Julie. Randy nodded and held her shoulders. Then they hugged and she kissed his cheek. He opened the secure door to the paint shop. The three vehicles Eddie had in the shop reeked of fresh paint. Fogarty waved from the module as Randy exited through the back door. He looked up to the brightening sky. As he lifted his arms upward and concentrated, he gradually rose over the garage and the surrounding buildings. The Camden Bay skyline reflected the sun peeking over Lake Van Buren. He waved to Fogarty now in the back parking lot, and then, as if he were diving over his shoulder into a swimming pool, he whooshed into the sky. From a thousand feet, he traced the sandy shore as the sun glowed over the lake. A few cars already traveled along the expressway. His anger at Junior grew as the wind blew back his hair and he traveled north. With added concentration, he flew faster. As the hills began to roll into the forested areas outside the Camden Bay city limits, the state road squiggled through the woods toward the town of Grassley, up the hill to the north. Randy slowed and began a slight descent. He knew that South Main Street paralleled Main Street. To prevent being seen, he sat down in the public park. 
few minutes later, he stepped onto Main Street and whooshed down a side street to South Main. He quickly understood the numerical sequence and spotted the long warehouse before he even saw the number. He ran along the corrugated metal gray facade. In the back parking lot next to three 18-wheeler trucks was a long black limo that he suspected was owned by Junior Janus. A concrete dock, canopied and emptied, extended out from a closed metal shipping door. Randy backtracked to find the entrance. He decided to walk directly to the glass doors up front. He moved through the unlocked doors and into the lobby. Immediately, he heard his sister's shaky voice in Junior's abrasive, crude language. Junior wore a dark blue suit with a red tie and matching handkerchief. I own you, brother. He'll tell me what you won't tell me. You never could get something simply on your own, Junior. It was always your father. Shut up! Or buying your way into women and privilege. I said shut your mouth. Randy entered the massive warehouse, stocked with coffins up front and more boxes down the aisle. Junior had tied Julie to a wooden chair in an open area to the right. Two of his men were behind in the glassed-in shipping office. Let her go, Janice. Junior spun around, his face brightened. Well, well, well. Unless you were hanging here in town, pal, you've got powers that I can use. Randy moved one step at a time toward Junior. Junior removed a black handgun from his suit coat. He waved the gun to his men to get out of the shipping office. They too had guns and circled in back of Julie. Randy's arms and legs formed an outer shell that encapsulated his chest and head. Junior stepped forward and put the gun to Julie's temple. Oh, look at him, cron man. Let's see how you stop me killing your sister. What do you want, Janice? Want you to do my bidding, cron man. Thought the president was doing that. How did you know that? Asked Junior, still holding the gun. And Kovar, where the hell is he? Don't play games with me, cron man. How about Andre Fournier? Said Randy as he moved closer. You're nuts. I'm going to kill her. Randy instantly had his hand around the gun and he squeezed the barrel. The heat caused Junior to release the grip. He backed up as the two men opened fire and he shielded Julie. The bullets only produced a thud against Randy's impenetrable shell and the slugs fell to the concrete. Both men dropped the guns and ran for the lobby. Randy untied Julie. In tears, she hugged his oversized body. Get the guns and lock yourself in the side office. I don't think they'll come back. Where are you going? To get the little twerp. She grabbed the guns and ran into the side office. Randy sprinted the length of the warehouse in seconds. The Cadillac was already skidding around the parking lot. Randy was at its rear bumper before the car could leave. He hoisted the Cadillac upward and the rear wheels produced a high-pitched whine as they spun. Then he slammed the car down so hard that the engine shut off. He opened the rear door but saw an empty seat. Where is he? He shouted at the limo driver. He ran away. He panned the bushes in the side street, and then he rounded the vehicle and thrust open the driver's door. Don't kill me. I'm not going to kill you. What's going on in here with those coffins? I, I, I can't say. Randy lifted him up with one hand, and as he choked, he blurted out what he knew. The electronics. Where? From overseas? Counterfeit. Fakes. Sold as the real thing in this country. Now I get it, said Randy as he lowered the driver to the asphalt. 
Sit on the hood and don't move. He removed his cell and called Wharton. Then he rose above the car in the parking lot. With patience, he scanned the road and bushes, but did not see Junior. John what? John, I have Julie, 22 South Main Street in Grassley. Junior's gotten away. He's bringing in fake merchandise, electronics from overseas and selling it here. Great work, Randy. I'm above the area now, but I don't see him. We're sending Camden Bay men and my own men up there. John, he's not answering questions about Kovar or Fournier. Of course. And Fournier isn't in the hotel. Is this man an assassin? I don't know. We're leaving now. We'll have a bulletin out on Junior. Something's happening here today, John. You need to convince Richardson to leave. Chapter 30. Freighter North Atlantic, 9.44 a.m. Collins, toothpick between his teeth, moved closer to the monitor. The drone, its light-colored exterior blending in with the powder blue sky, sat in the center of the dark, grainy deck. Four sets of blades spun concurrently. He checked the clock in the darkened control room next to the screen. In nine minutes, the synchronizing device inside the garage would arm the bomb. When the bomb was within range, a two-minute countdown clock to detonation would commence. He rotated the toothpick. Begin ascent. Beginning ascent, said Martin. The drone went straight into the sky. One of the cameras zoomed in on the spinning blades in four corners holding the linear weapon no more than three feet in length. Okay, let's get out of here, full speed. Collins again studied the drone, still rising and moving westward now on a steady course to the Camden Bay skyline. One hopes we will not be killed. You won't feel a thing if that happens, said Collins as he chuckled. He threw the toothpick to the floor. Bomb is ready for detonation. Very good, gentlemen, you have done your jobs. He felt the ship increase in speed, but his eyes were fixed on the spinning blades and the canister's deadly cargo, now a kilometer downrange and 900 feet in the air. A gruesome, deadly conspiracy. Regalia Square, Camden Bay, 2.49 p.m. Randy spotted Wilcox and Cross from Wyoming along the presidential platform. He stood with Fogarty in the tree-lined park. Children chased each other on the grass, and mothers and fathers wheeled baby carriages along the promenade. Harry and his family sat at a picnic table near the small pond. Ahead, Pappy played with Brownie as Eddie kept his distance. Pappy's girlfriend, Petunia, in her bright red pantsuit, clapped every time Brownie caught the frisbee. In front of the trees, a crowd of several thousand people had ringed the platform, already filled with dignitaries. Mayor Ames prattled on and received several rounds of lame applause. Pappy threw the red frisbee through the warm air above the grass. Brownie leaped into the air and snapped his mouth over the frisbee as he ran back to Pappy. That dog is a one-trick pony, said Eddie. Brownie growled at Eddie. You don't scare me, Brownie. When the dog barked, Eddie jumped back. Randy's cell phone rang. Randy. It's John. I'm waiting to hear from Canada. They may have Kovar. Cross has told me that Kovar is definitely Fournier. That makes sense. There's a car chase going on in Montreal right now. Fournier was the name he used to book the 11 p.m. flight to London. He had gone to a local restaurant. He must have seen security somehow. He had rented a van. They'll find him. 
They're chasing Kovar in Canada, he said in a lower voice to Fogarty. He used the name Fournier. Exactly what was inside your head, she said, holding his wrist. What was his role in this, John? asked Randy, nodding. I don't know. I'll just be glad when Richardson is out of the city, he said as several jets passed overhead below the mottled clouds. I hear the jets. They shut down all air traffic in the corridor. It would have been just easier if the president had gone back to D.C. last night. Hold the line, Randy. This is good news, Fogarty. The mayor had begun his introduction of the president. Julie was speaking to the camera to the left of the platform. It's good that they have Fournier, but time is running out, she said as Ames shouted out Richardson's name. The crowd cheered as the gray-haired president in a light suit walked toward the podium. I am very nervous. Me too. Hey, Kokomau, said Eddie, dressed in a yellow sport coat. There he is, the Duke, the Duke. That's him, Eddie. Eddie hit his arm. So where have you been? Not now, Eddie. Brownie moved up beside him and Randy patted his head. Good boy. Why, thank you, said Eddie as Pappy waddled over. Not you, Eddie, said Pappy. The other mutt. Hey, you ain't no spring chicken either, Pappy. Richardson stepped to the mic. Hello, Camden Bay. The crowd waved and cheered wildly as his voice echoed across the square. This city was very good to me during the last election, and we appreciate it. With Camden Bay, we carried the state. Thank you. Randy, said John Wharton as he came back on the line. The president continued with his speech. What did we overlook, John? Anthrax, bioweapons, dirty bomb. How Fournier fits into that, I can't figure out. Randy pinched the bridge of his nose. This is such a crapshoot, John. The president shouldn't even be here. Clearly, Fournier is here to transfer something, said Wharton. Colonel is back on the line. Hold on. Randy, is there anything else? Asked Briggs. I just got off the phone with Wenzel. If Fournier had shown up at the meeting with the president last night, I wouldn't be worried. Or maybe he didn't accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. Then why leave the empty suitcases in the room? As the president told a mediocre joke, Briggs shuffled some papers. I have Wenzel's transcript about you waking up. With all due respect, Colonel, we already know that. The light, the clouds, the beings, all the hookups, and all ended with more clouds and names as I woke up. What kind of clouds? asked Fogarty as she pointed through the fluffy trees at the high cloud cover. Like that? Randy nodded as he looked up. Then he faced the road toward Lake Van Buren. When he concentrated, it was like zooming with a camera, but he saw nothing. Then he shook his head at Fogarty. The sky. What do you see, Randy? asked Wharton. Very similar, like when I woke up. I'm getting helicopters up there right now, yelled Briggs. Randy looked over his shoulder. Over the lake was a very light-colored drone with something below that approached a few thousand feet above the lake. Forget the firepower, Colonel. What is it, Randy? I'll take care of it. Pappy played with Brownie, with Eddie pontificating. Julie spoke into the camera a few hundred feet away. He turned to Fogarty. I like you, Fogarty. I just want you to know that. He smiled at Fogarty and then ran toward the alley. Once away from the crowd, Randy folded his arms and rose upward. He could hear Richardson taper off as he panned the sky from the hills outward toward the lake.
Fogarty's phone rang. Briggs's voice was clear. Where is he, Fogarty? I saw him fly up, Colonel. He's way up there now. I lost sight of him. What do you think? It's a long shot, Colonel. Everything is okay here on the ground. Keep me posted. Fogarty slipped her phone into her pocket. She walked away from Eddie and Pappy toward Julie, no longer on the air. Hello, Fogarty. Are you all right? I'm okay. Where's Randy? She pointed upward. Surveillance. Think we'll be all right. The president's almost done. Her phone sounded. It was Wharton. Is he up there? Yes. As he spoke, the entire sky brightened. Nuclear! Run, John! Wharton laughed. How can I make any difference now, my friend? A shockwave threw everyone to the ground. The sound was so loud she blocked her ears. In the sky, a silver, platinum, oval cloud, luminescent and green toward the center, swirled and then began shrinking. The wide explosion suddenly reversed and the wild clouds compressed into a pinpoint. Then all was quiet. At first she heard birds. Then the president's press secretary announced everything was okay. Fogarty sat up. Her eyes moistened because she knew that light had been the beginnings of some kind of horrific blast. But that blast reversed and disappeared into nothing and took Randy Wilson with it. Chapter 31 West Side Condos, August 25, 2021, 9.33 a.m. Julie had requested an indefinite leave of absence. The explosion in the sky had been spun by the media, primarily by Briggs an atmospheric phenomenon promulgated by an intense lake surge or water spout. No one was hurt and no damage occurred. But her tears had not stopped ever since it became apparent by Briggs's assessment that Randy had prevented an explosion of a bomb, possibly nuclear, by focusing the blast into another dimension. A cataclysmic war had been averted. During the past 12 hours, a recovery team had in secret searched the area for Randy. Even work on the underwater module had ceased. Julie looked out her window as Briggs and Fogarty exited a white SUV and started up the condo's front walk. She wiped her eyes with a moistened towel. Before they reached the front, she opened the door. Fogarty hugged her and Briggs followed up on his many phone calls. I just talked to Chief Baldwin. Rod is under arrest, as we had hinted before. So he worked for Junior getting to all those jurors. It may be more extensive. Where's Junior now? There's a warrant out for his arrest. The feds are after him for contraband electronics. Kovar talked about that also. He and his company helped Janice bring the fake electronics in from Shanghai. He'll go away for a long time, as will Janice once we find him. There'd been arrest of Fournier's people in the Middle East. But there's something odd, said Fogarty. Like what? asked Julie. Janice's handkerchief is trademark, said Briggs, left on the presidential platform as they were taking it apart. So he was there, she asked. Apparently so. Briggs showed her the photo of the red silk handkerchief taken on his phone. He's pure evil. We're heading out to Delta. We're going to pick up Randy's things. We had shipped some of his personal things out there, but he never actually went to the module. Please, come along. She thought for a second, I don't know. I think it would be therapeutic, said Briggs. This is where he was going to live? asked Julie. Briggs nodded. 
Yes, we had to separate him from the public, especially after the Janus Tower incident. Some of Randy's things were brought out there. Julie swallowed once. I'll go. Delta Complex, under Lake Van Buren, 11.55 a.m. The mini-sub had docked with a huge cluster module that glowed in the long window span. A single light from the sub's navigation system shined over a connector tube under construction as it disappeared into the darkness under Lake Van Buren. Another tube connected to an additional partly completed module. Briggs said it would take a few years to complete the entire complex. The colonel pushed the code to open the docking door. Brownie trotted inside ahead of them. Eventually this will be a defense base, top secret and fully armed, said Briggs. They'll start work again on that next week. This is unbelievable. Brownie sniffed through the furniture and the rugs. Prototype that will be used for space-based complexes. Inside the voluminous spear, a wide window span overlooked the water several hundred feet below Lake Van Buren. Julie turned to Fogarty and Briggs. It's just occurring to me that Randy averted a catastrophe for the president and the city. Yes, he did said Fogarty, biting her lip. He liked you a lot, Fogarty. I know, she said in a low voice. Brownie disappeared into the other room. Then the dog began barking. Briggs furrowed his brow as he paced the module. He wandered over to the living quarters doorway, and then he stopped. Oh, dear God. What's the matter? asked Julie. The matter, Mookie? said Randy as he walked into the open area. He wore a jersey and shorts. Is that I made it through. He bent down and Brownie licked his face. Incredible, said Briggs. Julie, crying, threw her arms around her brother as he stood. I can't believe it. Randy shook Briggs's hand as he walked slowly toward Fogarty. How? she asked, wiping her eye. She gently held him and rested her head on his shoulder. I was able to force the explosion inward. It simply dissipated like snow melting on the pavement. I was thrown back high above the lake, but none of it seemed to affect me. We'll have medical determine that, said Briggs, still shaking his head with a dumb look on his face. You know, Fogarty, I could go for a Giardelli's chocolate bar. How about you? Fogarty nodded, and her eyes filled as her smile broadened. I ask again, Randy, how, how? Because, Fogarty, he said, taking her hands, in case you hadn't noticed, I'm Cron Man. Epilogue, Janus Tower, October 14th, 2021. Rudy walked through Junior's office door. Dutch Corcoran and Evelyn leaned over his desk. Junior, in his shirt sleeves, looked up from the papers as he was reading. What is it, Rudy? I went over to the garage. Conover doesn't know nothing. Conover's a fool. He looked up at Dutch. So you're telling me, Dutch, the federal attorney has actually given me immunity. The president is happy that immigration rounded up old Boris and Kovar will be spending the rest of his life in jail. All's well that ends well. Not quite, smart boy. 
Obviously, they tried to nuke Richardson. I was right there by the platform. Nobody has any idea why that bomb didn't level the city, but where the hell is Randy Wilson? I don't know, Junior. Junior signed the statement and then stood. I'll tell you one thing. Wilson picked up the back of that limo. He stopped my men in the hospital, and he wasn't even phased by the shots. Wilson is cron man, right, Rudy? Well, that would be my judgment. Exactly, he said, handing the agreement to Dutch. Wilson is cron man, and cron man stopped that blast. So what are you saying? asked Dutch. Two things, Dutch. I will have Julie Wilson. What's the second thing, boss? asked Rudy. Second thing, Rudy, is I'm going to locate Cronman and find his weakness and then take him down. What Randy does to that nuclear bomb dimensionally is a stunt I could see George Reeves performing in the original Adventures of Superman. At the end, it appears all is lost, until Julie and Fogarty re-enter Delta Complex under Lake Van Buren, and Randy, having survived the blast in several dimensions, reappears. How is this possible? In the words of Randy himself, In case you haven't noticed, Fogarty, I am Cronman. From Mega Human Nice Guy, we proceed to two novels in the House series. Being alone at a distant house might be defined as welcome time away until things go awry. In this series, temporary occupants of homes in various locations face life-threatening situations, all with a killer lurking. Oh, and why R.P. Fitton instead of Robert P. Fitton? Just a simple designation to a mystery or a non-sci-fi book. All right, I have a choice as the plane warms up to board the plane to the Chesapeake or to the Maine coastline. I believe my ticket is punch for Maine. Here's the rundown. A woman named Maddie Summers is caught in the throes of an abusive marriage. A gentle and sensitive soul, Maddie separates from her husband John after physical and emotional turmoil. She retreats to Maine on vacation, exchanging her Arizona home for a 19th century house on rocky cliffs overlooking the Atlantic. Alone and five miles from the town of Rexford, Maine, Maddie is harassed by eerie phone calls on her old rotary dial phone. McCabe, the owner and manager of many local properties, helps Maddie with her broken down rental car and with the problems around the exchange house. McCabe takes Maddie out on a date, but she finds evidence that her estranged husband is now in the area. A ponytailed and weird mechanic stalks her. As the fierce storm hits the area, someone else on the property cuts the phone wires and Maddie is forced to flee for her life. Not until the final moments with her life in the balance does the identity of the assailant become evident. That's next time on Fitting on the Air. I'm boarding the plane for Maine and see you guys later. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz, 
www.pizzazz.com.
Alright, here we go. This is a long one. I think 60 years away from the Cuban Missile Crisis, it's easy to have a complacent attitude toward the destructive and lethal power of an atomic bomb. This is what Cronman faces as the conspiracy to nuke, to nuke Camden Bay and the President of the United States continues. That conspiracy is front and center here in Episode 5, and Junior Janus has covered his tracks in that and other illegal activities. Cronman flies on his own accord when Junior threatens his sister Julie. All the while, the bomb is about to be armed. Episode 5, Cronman, concludes. Let's do that again. Episode 5 of Cronman by Robert P. Fitton concludes now. Thank <laughs> you. 